So with great joy, I introduce to you again our dear friend, our brother in the ministry, Scott Brown. Those of you who were here for the unbelievable Seder service that we had earlier this year with Son of David, that was Scott's congregation when I first met him. He was uh, leading that congregation. God brought us into a relationship. God later called him to the mission field, although we all live and a mission field, uh, and um, we're so, so pleased to have him with us today to bring the Word of God. So Scott, welcome back to Pathways. Pathways, let's welcome our brother back. Do you guys realize what a cool church you have? I mean, you've got a saxophone section, harmonica. I mean, you know, you've got, you play Scott Joplin? Who does that? You've got dancers up front. By the way, while the dancers were going, I don't know if you noticed, those guys were doing a better show back there. <laughs> they, were, they were like, you know, they were being moved by an unseen force. And they thought nobody noticed, but I was watching you. And you looked really good. Well, brothers and sisters, it's only been two years, but it feels like 10. Uh, you know, Margie and I treasure the relationships that we've had with you. We've cultivated these relationships over literally decades. And uh, it's very important to us. And, and how pumped we are, Margie and I, that we are actually part of your global partners. We uh, are the tendrils that Pathways has reaching all the way to the other side of the earth, uh, to New Zealand. So we thank you so much for supporting us in that way. I want to give you a little bit of an update of just what's going on. If you could pull up that PowerPoint um, that says that. Perfect. Thank you so much. This is our vision statement, bringing the message, of, which is the message of Messiah, back to the original messengers, the Jewish people. Now, um, I may need your help back there. Let me see if we can get this thing going. That's all right. It worked earlier. Abracadabra. <laughs> all right. I'll need a finger up there just to touch the next slide, please. There we go. So um, there's Margie and me. We are in New Zealand. We're primarily doing our evangelism in the South Island, which you're seeing, reaching out to Israelis and other international backpackers in New Zealand. Next. Um, last time I saw you, I think there were only like 2 million visitors coming. By the way, the, the South Island only has 1.2 million residents. We have 3.7 million international tourists coming to New Zealand every single year. Jesus has told us to preach the gospel where? In all the world? Well, all the world is coming to New Zealand, so it's a remarkable opportunity for the gospel right there in that little South Island. Next. It's the wow factor that brings most people. I'm going to ask you to just sort of scroll through those, give it about three seconds per, uh, per, per picture. Now, I'm not being subtle here. I've been trying for decades to tempt you to come to New Zealand. I've been begging you for years. How many of you have come? None of you. You ever throw a party and nobody comes? That's how we feel. All right, so stop it. Repent. Come down and visit us. All right, repentance is good. You go first. <laughs> anyway, I'm showing you these pictures because this is what you see in New Zealand. And the millions of people who backpack through New Zealand, they're immersed in this every day, after week, after year. I mean, some of these are, are backpacking for years. Now, you cannot be immersed in this kind of beauty day after week after month without being affected somehow. I don't care if you're atheistic, agnostic, I don't care what you believe. Uh, you cannot be exposed to the beauty of the Creator's creation without somehow being wooed to the Creator. 
And so to be able to meet these people in this place where the beauty of the creation is, is reaching into their souls and, and causing them to wonder who could be behind all of this, this is the time where we're meeting them with the gospel. So you can stop right there. Thank you. Most of our work, obviously, is evangelism, frontline evangelism. Next slide. Um, one of the things we do is evangelistic backpacker barbecues. We actually don't barbecue backpackers because that just seems mean. Um, but we do serve up a lot of good food, free food for backpackers every week, typically on a Sunday night. We serve up the good news of Messiah Jesus. Uh, and next, we also serve up Bibles in lots of languages and other gospel literature in multiple languages. It's very interesting as you're looking at this picture, you notice these guys are really engaging with God's Word. Most of them have, will have never read a Bible before, never have picked one up. And here they are for the first time, you know, on their overseas adventure, seeing and engaging with God's Word. It's an amazing thing to, to see. Um, you can give it one more click there. 24 nations are sitting there. 24 nations are sitting there. These are the catalysts. These are the change makers. These millennials, basically. These are the leaders of the emerging generation. To be able to, for 50 to 70 US dollars, share the gospel with dozens of nations at a time, this is the kind of opportunity we have every single week in New Zealand, especially during the warm months. Next. So our major focus, of course, is to Israelis. Now, I've shared this with you in the past that Israelis, young Israelis, when they've finished high school, they have mandatory military service, two to three years of mandatory service. Everybody goes into the army. It's traumatizing, it's difficult, it's, it's hellish. And so after that period, literally all of them go somewhere. Thousands of them come to New Zealand. To meet them in New Zealand after they've had three years of, of trauma, three years of of, of threat. Some of them have seen their buddies killed uh, on the field. To meet them in this place, this chapter where they're asking life's most important questions, well, strategically, missiologically, it, it makes perfect sense. And this is why we have much more freedom to have spiritual conversation with Israelis in New Zealand than we do on the streets of Tel Aviv, Haifa, or Jerusalem. So strategically, it's an amazing opportunity for Jewish evangelism. Next. So what we do is we have three facilities. Uh, we have, historically, three facilities where we offer free, yes, free accommodation to Israeli travelers in New Zealand. These are largely uh, managed and uh, our staff consists of born-again Israelis, obviously Hebrew-speaking Israelis, who are sharing the gospel with their Israeli peers every day and into the night. Israelis start drinking coffee at around midnight, so we have a, a very caffeinated ministry. Um, next slide. This is our, the Zula Lodge. This is our premier facility. This is in Wanaka, which is a very popular resort. Um, next slide. You can give it a few more clicks until you fill that screen. This is, uh, these are typical scenes at the Zula. We are teaming with young Israelis for about seven months. We actually have Israelis all year long, but for seven months, we're really filled. Um, next slide. So we have a Shabbat celebration every Friday night where we not only serve up a lot of good food, next slide, we also have a, a service uh, where, of course, we share in Hebrew the gospel of the Lord of the Sabbath, Yeshua the Messiah. This is one of our Hebrew-speaking volunteers, next. 
this is a typical scene in the Zula, open Bible, open uh, computer, Bible studies, you know, as God offers opportunity, which is often, we take those opportunities. Next slide. Sharing our testimony. This is one of our Israeli, uh, Israeli Hebrew-speaking volunteers sharing her testimony of Jesus with Israeli guests. Next slide. This is a homestead, our second facility. It's in another part of the South Island. Next slide. It is managed by Zohar Gonen, who's my co-worker. He's Israeli, another born-again believer, wonderful evangelist. Next. Typical scene at the homestead. We have 15 to 25 every single night during the summer. Next. Uh, and, you know, it's a lot of redemptive schmoozing, just conversation. Uh, Zohar, in the bottom right there, he just has an amazing ability to, to bring Messiah into every conversation. Next. Oh, there he does. He goes again. See how brilliant that was? Anyway, this is a hummus night. Say it with me. Hummus. Hummus. No more hummus for you, okay? It's, it's hummus. You've got to spit just a little bit. Don't, don't spit in the hummus. But Israelis love hummus. They're dying slowly after leaving Israel and not having hummus. So we get onto the Israeli Facebook page in New Zealand and say, hey, everybody, hummus night. We give them the time and the place, and they show up. This is, again, you'll never see this in Israel. This is Zohar speaking in Hebrew, preaching from the Torah, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, preaching Jesus in Hebrew to 40 young Israelis. You won't see this commonly anywhere in the world. It's happening in New Zealand every Tuesday night. Next. And this is the campground where Margie and I actually launched a ministry. We no longer live there. We don't have the campground anymore. But for 10 years, we had this wilderness campground where, believe it or not, we had 2,300 Israelis visit us, which is amazing because this it's out in the wilderness, and you know what happens when Israelis go into the wilderness. You know, they get lost for like 40 years at a time. So the fact that they found us is pretty astounding. Next. One more click. The point is that among our three facilities, we've had just under 7,000 personal evangelistic, evangelistic encounters with young Israelis. I'm not talking about handing out tracts or Jesus loves you. I'm talking about face-to-face heart-to-heart evangelistic encounters with these young people. It is astounding what God is doing among Jewish seekers in New Zealand. Next. Point is that outreach through accommodation works. Now, I'm going to shut this little thing down by just asking you to pray with us. There is a place called Tiano. Next. That little green arrow shows you where Tiano is. Next slide. Tiano is actually the Strategic bullseye. Back up one, please. It's the strategic bullseye for evangelism in New Zealand. And the reason I say that is because Tiana is this teeny little village which leads to, it's the last civilization between uh, the rest of New Zealand and Fiordland where the greatest of the great walks uh, are found. Now, these great walks are where every single Israeli will end up. Every Israeli in New Zealand has to go through Tiana. They'll be lingering there on their way in and on their way out. To not have a facility there is actually criminal. We need a facility there. Next. We've been asking God for such a facility as this, and this is actually on the market. We do not own it. We're asking you to pray with us for this. Uh, it is perfect from our perspective for 
uh, outreach around Tiano. It has everything we need. It has huge communal areas. It has a house for our volunteers. It's perfect. We've raised about 50% of the funds. We have a donor who says if we raise 75%, they'll give the rest of the money. So if you would pray that God would release those funds. If you are burdened with too many discretionary funds, we'd love to unburden you. Or if you'd just like to make a kingdom investment, this will exponentially increase our witness to Israel in New Zealand if we own this. Next slide. Okay, it's creepy, I know. Push it one more time if you would, thank you. Guys, we really need volunteers. Uh, age 19 to 30 is perfect, the reason being, you know, we're serving young people, it's very long hours. Uh, you're kind of in communal sleeping areas. If you are or you know somebody <clears throat> Looking back there, if you are or you know somebody who uh, would be qualified, who loves the Lord and who is willing to be trained, you get them there, you bring them back, we'll take care of them in New Zealand, we'll train them, we'll feed them, we'll water them, we will, we will um, board them, but it's a great experience. We need about 15 to 20 volunteers. Let us know if you're interested. Next. Pray for us, please. Next slide. Stay connected with us. Uh, we have right under the clock in the foyer there, there are some sign-up sheets. Come on out, sign up, put your email down. We won't inundate you. We'll just let you know what's going on so you can pray with us. Thank you for that. Next slide. It's a privilege to be part of your series. I know that you are, you are goading these days. Uh, you're talking about uh, the greatest of all times. And I just want to fit into this series by talking about the greatest captive of all time. You know, I would imagine that among life's experiences, one of the most debilitating would be that of being captured. When I was a kid, my guy friends and I would occasionally play war games. You know, we would, we would shoot at each other, we'd chase each other, and we'd shout insults at each other. That was all fun. But getting captured, even in a game, getting captured was never fun. It was humiliating, it was frustrating. And even in a game, there was sort of this feeling of hopelessness. Now, I have never known a POW, a prisoner of war, but I can imagine there is no more hellish experience not knowing if you'll ever escape, not knowing if you'll ever return to the life you once had, not knowing, being trapped with no apparent way out at the mercy of the enemy and hopeless. In this sanctuary, and certainly outside those doors, there may be a few ex-POWs, but there are plenty of POCs, prisoners of circumstance, folks who are feeling trapped with no hope of getting out. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about because you are in that place right now. And the truth is, being or feeling captured, it's part of life, you know? You may never be a POW, but chances are you will feel like one at some time or another. Some people feel trapped by, by singleness. I've heard this many times by single men and women. If I could only get married, then I'd be free. And then they get married and some of them say, if only I could be single again. Uh, it's actually not very funny, but you know what I'm talking about. And some people feel trapped by their job or by their illness or by their lack of finances or, or trapped by life itself, which is the ultimate despair when, when suicide becomes the only hope of freedom. Dear ones, everyone at one time or another feels trapped, captured, 
by their circumstances. And I'll tell you something you may already know if you've ever read a Bible, if you've ever lived a few years. Believers can feel just as trapped as non-believers. The storms rage and the winds howl and the rains fall upon the just and the unjust. In fact, I wonder if God's kids don't feel more trapped sometimes. After all, this isn't even our home. We are sojourners in this place. This is not where we belong. If you've ever felt captured, a POW, a prisoner of woes, this message is for you. And God has mercifully captured the life story of a man and, and preserved it for every generation of POWs. His name was Daniel. Daniel. And if you're willing to learn, he will teach you the secret to victorious living in captivity. Now, my prayer for you is this, that the next time you're tempted to say, if only I could escape this present trial or circumstance or job or marriage or whatever it is, then I would be free. I pray that you will think of Daniel, a man who lived and died in captivity, yet whose life was utterly victorious. First, a quick little history lesson. The year was 606 BC. Nebuchadnezzar, soon to be king of Babylon, invaded Jerusalem and captured it. Now, this was the first strike of the Babylonians, which would eventually lead to Judah's 70-year captivity in Babylon. The entire nation was taken hostage. Now, the book of Lamentations is just that. It is a lament. It is a wailing cry of despair over the annihilation of Jerusalem brought on by the Babylonians. It was one of the darkest times in Jewish history. Daniel was among the very first to be taken out of Jerusalem and hauled off to Babylon. He was just a boy, but he exhibited sterling character amidst stifling circumstances. Even as a young boy, Daniel would not allow the most dire circumstances to shape his character. He was captive, but he was not compromising. Now, if you're under 55, you probably won't remember this, but for those of us who are over 55, you may remember the days when you're, you'd be watching TV and suddenly the screen would go blank. Do you remember that? And then a voice would come on the screen, due to circumstances beyond our control. Does anybody remember that? <laughs> oh, a bunch of oldies here. Okay. Due to circumstances beyond our control, the regularly scheduled program ain't going to happen. Okay. Basically, they were saying this. We've got an excuse. We refuse to take responsibility for our failure due to circumstances beyond our control. I do that, don't you? Due to circumstances beyond my control, you know, whatever it is, I'm late for a meeting, I have to speed, you know? I've been offended, I have to be bitter and unforgiving. Due to circumstances beyond my control, my regularly scheduled integrity and good character ain't gonna happen. Given the circumstances, I refuse to take responsibility for my conduct. After all, you'd act the same way if you had my fill in the blank. My boss, my husband, my wife, my kids, my neighbors, my church, my car, my toaster, my cell phone, you know, whatever your problem is, if you had my problem, you'd act the same way. Daniel says, no. No, you can be captive without compromising, even if your circumstances never change. Think of it. Dear ones, Daniel 
died in exile. His problem never went away, but in captivity, Daniel discovered principles that led him to victorious living. Daniel chapter 1. What was Daniel's secret that enabled him to be captive without compromising? He understood a few things. Number one, next slide. He was taken into captivity by the providence of God. Now, in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 1, you see this, this looming figure, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Anybody know Veggie Tales? Okay, you remember Shackrack and Benny? King Nezer and Nezer Nezerland, right? Okay, pretty intimidating figure, even in uh, the Veggie Tales. You may have an intimidating figure in your life right now. Some, some Nebuchadnezzar who has taken you captive. And you're thinking, you know what? If only God, if only God would knock off this fool, you know, exile him to Nezer Nezerland. If only he'd get rid of this thing then I could get on with my life. I mean, what's he waiting for anyway? This problem's been holding me captive for so long. Where is God? Well, friends, it may not thrill you to discover where God is. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Oops. Dear one, Nebuchadnezzar may be on your doorstep because God brought him there. I realize that's not a fun message. Providence is not always comfortable or convenient, even for nice Jewish boys like Daniel. Jonah, another nice Jewish boy, stubborn but nice, is, taken, is thrown out of a boat by a bunch of scared fishermen, Jonah chapter 2, from a fish's belly. Jonah cries out, Lord, you cast me into the deep. You're billows and your waves passed over me. Lord, you cast me into the deep. He figured that out. Jonah was taken captive. Daniel was taken captive by the providence of God, and you may be as well. He's still in charge even when you become a POW, a prisoner of woes. When you're taken captive by that miserable circumstance, the God who never slumbers or sleeps, the God who is wide awake, he didn't doze off just long enough to let the enemy sneak in and carry you off, no. But in order to see God in your captivity, whether you're in the middle of Babylon or in the middle of a fish, you've got to trust him from your heart. Even when you don't feel he's there emotionally, even when you don't think he's there intellectually. Would you fill in the blank for me? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The blessed in heart see him in every circumstance. Those who are trusting the Lord, not just from their thinker and their feeler, but for their, from their innermost being, those folks who are pure in heart are blessed. Why? Because they have eyes that see from the heart. They see God is sovereign. They see him sovereign in every situation, even yours right now. And one of the reasons Daniel could have victory in captivity, point one, was that he could see that he was taken into captivity by the providence of God. Was Satan involved? Absolutely. Was it a happy situation? No way. It was a tragic situation. Was evil at work at this? Undoubtedly. 
But according to Genesis 50, verse 20, speaking of another Jewish guy in captivity, according to Genesis 50, verse 20, evil, listen, folks, evil is one of the necessary ingredients in God's recipe for good. Just because evil is present doesn't mean God is absent. Now, let me ask you a question. Who put Jesus on the execution stake? God or man? God, by the hands of evil men, both Jews and Gentiles, leaders and followers, God nailed Jesus to that cursed tree. Yet the author of Hebrews could write, for the joy, yes, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising its shame. In his captivity, Jesus saw the providence of God. Now, going back to Daniel chapter 1, we can see more of God's providence leading Daniel into captivity. I'm looking at Daniel 1, verses 3 and 4. Daniel 1, verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the ma master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. So why were Daniel and his buddies taken? Well, according to the text, they were good-looking, intelligent, and fast learners, just like all of us Jews. <laughs> no, actually, I'm living proof that that is not true. <laughs> so guess who made them that way? The Lord. You see, it was their God-given qualities that got them in trouble. I mean, I'm guessing they were thinking, I wish I were ugly, dumb, and slow. You know, in some countries, beautiful women must make themselves unattractive just to be able to walk outside without the threat of rape. They are trapped by their God-given beauty. Daniel and his three friends were trapped by their own God-given qualities. And the world, friends, the world will try to buy you, capture you, if you have certain God-given attributes. Nebuchadnezzar said, you know what, Daniel, I'm going to make you a star. I'm putting right, you right on Babylon's Got Talent, all right? You guys are better than the rest. Man, you are the cream of the crop. As long as you're in Babylon, you're going to fly first class, but... First, you've got to become like one of us. You've got to talk like us and think like us. You'll see that in verse 4 of Daniel 1. In other words, you need to change your ideology. You've got to eat like us, verse 5. In other words, I need you to change your culture. And by the way, you need to be named like one of us, verses 6 and 7. In other words, change your very identity and self-image. Did you know that in 1976, Albania, the country, enacted a law that anyone with a biblical name must change that name? Interesting, huh? Why? Oh, it's very simple. They were afraid that they would look up the source of their name and discover the Bible. So all the Daniels and Davids and Josephs and Sarahs and Pauls and Matthews and Habakkuks, <laughs> Habakkuk, uh, they'd have to change their name. You may have a God-given attribute that the world finds attractive that they'll want for their own. And come on, isn't it nice to be wanted? Sure it is. So they'll offer you a deal. 
Here's the deal. We'll let you fly first class through life. We're going to make you a star, but first, you got to become like us. Just compromise a little bit, not much, all right? Meet us halfway. Loosen up a little. Hey, put down that Bible for a minute. Check out this magazine. Look at this video. Oh, I know it's a little questionable, but you'll like it. And your language, I mean, good grief. You know, you'd fit in a whole lot better if you'd stop this faith talk all the time. Stop blaming all your good, good luck on God. Talk like us. Oh, and there's this issue of your identity as well. Look, I know it's important for you to be a Christian, whatever that means, but couldn't you just reserve that for Sunday and take off that cross? You know, friends, <clears throat> if that girl or that guy or that salary or that lifestyle sweetens the pot just enough, you'll be tempted to make compromise a way of life. You'll be that frog in the kettle. You and I both know of believers who are moving closer and closer to their captors and farther and farther away from their captain. Yes, it's the providence of God that we be in this world, but not of this world. And if you've already been purchased by Messiah's blood, then you have no right, you have no right to negotiate a contract with the world. Daniel could have victory in captivity because he knew he was taken into captivity by the providence of God. Number two, next slide. Daniel also understood that he was tested through captivity by the purposes of God. Now, every one of us has been in school at one time or another. You know, everyone knows that any good teacher tests his or her students on purpose. Testing is part of the purpose and design of teaching. No testing, no growing. Now, if God, your teacher, capital T, is teaching you anything, you better believe he's going to test you to see if you really understand the lesson. Paul, writing to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, says, listen, we faced such trials, tests, in Asia that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. Paul didn't think they would survive the test. He goes on to say, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, here's why, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Okay, it kills us, so what? God will raise us from the dead. Wow. God has placed his hand on his people and they are in captivity, not just in captivity, but like Daniel's friends, they're in the furnace. God has his hand on them. He has a purpose that he means to accomplish through them. And if they endure this present trial where they feel the sentence of death, if they continue to trust not in themselves but in God who raises the dead, well, you're going to see a few more shining lights in the kingdom. The test is in the purpose of God. So going back to Daniel 1, 8 through 14, would you agree that a mark of maturity, listen, a mark of Christian maturity is when one is so sure that God has a purpose behind this present trial that he actually welcomes it. Now, there's not many people like that. I, I know that. Do you remember in school when you would hide behind your desk to avoid being called on? Anybody remember that? You know, you kind of like, you know, the teacher's looking for someone and you're kind of hiding. But there was always that one or two who were like, you know, they always wanted to be called on, right? You know, and they usually had pigtails and they were non-males. Do you remember those guys? And at the end of the class, you know, they'd say, oh, oh, um, 
Mrs. Jones, are, are, you, forgot to, you forgot to get the, the homework, right? And, and Mrs. Jones, aren't we supposed to have a test today, Mrs. Jones? And we're all going, Argh. And the teacher would always say, oh, thank you so much for reminding me, Prissy. They were always named Prissy. Why did they do this? Because they were studied and they were ready. And if you're trusting God today, dear ones, you can be studied and ready, even willing for the test, because you know that God's going to pull you through it. Margie and I went to Bible school in Alaska. The year was 1983. We're driving the Alcan, drove to Alaska. Now, the Alcan Highway was anything but a highway. Sometimes you would come to, uh, you know, a single path, and that path would become dirt, and that dirt would become mud, and suddenly there's this sea of mud. I mean, a sea of mud. There's no other way of saying it. And the first time, Margie will remember, first time we came to one of these mud cities, we just sat there. We're in this little teeny Toyota Corolla, right? And thinking, oh, how, what are we going to do? And suddenly, like Jurassic Park, you remember, you know how the water's shaking, you know, the ripples and the, well, the mud is rippling, right? And suddenly this machine, literally larger than the house we live in right now, this machine, this gigantic, this thing must have had a zip code. It was so big comes through the mud, latches onto our car, and pulls us through the mud. It was the most amazing moment. And after that incredible event, I was looking forward to mud seas because I knew we couldn't do it in our own strength. This thing was going to pull us through. Daniel was proactive in taking the test. Why? He knew God was going to pull him through the mud. He knew God was in it. He knew God had a purpose. Now notice in verse 8, Daniel chose the test he would take. Interesting. Now he didn't make an issue of the command to learn the language, didn't make an issue of the business about reading the books, because he was secure. He was standing firm in his ideologies. Books aren't going to change his mind. He didn't make an issue of the name change. It was obnoxious and uncomfortable now being associated with a false god, but Daniel's identity with the true God was so secure. But he chose his test. When it came to eating and drinking the king's food and wine, that's where he drew the line, and he asked for a test. He was proactive. He said, test me. Interesting. Why did he do that? See, Daniel could learn Chaldean. He could read philosophy books. He could carry an imposed name without himself compromising without himself disobeying God, but he could not eat that diet without compromising God's standards. It wasn't so much an issue of being kosher as it was about idolatry. You see, in that culture, meat and wine were daily offered to idols. It would have been a defilement for Daniel to partake. Daniel had convictions about the meat and the wine, and he was willing to be tested. Now, here's the point, friends. Did it ever occur to you that you and I, listen, you and I are tested according to the convictions we hold? Now, each conviction you have is a raised hand before your teacher God saying, isn't it time for a test? Every single conviction you have. Daniel did not make everything an issue. Language, books, name change, no biggie, no big deal, okay? No. He chose his issue. He chose his convictions, and in that way, he chose his tests. Folks, some of us make an issue over everything. 
What? You don't believe that seven angels can stand on the head of a pin? Why, I would die to preserve that conviction. Okay, well, that's nice. Some of us have enough convictions to choke a Pharisee. And whether you realize it or not, your hand is always raised. Test me, test me, because you've got so many goofy convictions. If you do a little bit of soul searching, friend, you may discover that the reason you're always being tested is that you're so dogmatic over really stupid things. Sorry. Don't worry, I'm leaving very quickly after the service. <laughs> may I suggest, may I humbly suggest, stop taking yourself and every little darling conviction so seriously. Some of you are dead wrong in your convictions anyway. I'm doing great, but you're a mess. <laughs> Choose your test wisely. God will test your convictions. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Good. Hold to that one. Don't compromise. Be willing to raise a hand. Be willing to, raise, to be tested in that. You believe that God, God's word is, the Bible is God's word, inerrant and, and authoritative for life and practice? Good. Raise your hand for that one. Be willing to be tested. But make sure your convictions are worth testing. Your list of things to die for should not be a long list. We want you to live a long and healthy life. If it's worth dying for, it better be worth living for. Worth being tested, something within God's purpose, because all things don't work together for, for good for everyone. No, it's just for those who are called according to his purpose. Final slide. Daniel understood that he was triumphant in captivity by the power of God by the power of God. Daniel chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, as we wrap this up. At the end of 10 days, their countenance, that is, those who chose this vegetarian meal, at the end of 10 days, their countenance appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. They passed the test. And thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. They didn't have to eat the unkosher stuff. Interesting, huh? I, you know, I think of National Enquirer, you know, miracle diet, gain weight and look better in 10 days of nothing but veggies and water. And that's exactly what they had. It was a miracle diet. The power of God was sufficient to pull them through that test. But the victory doesn't end in verse 16. Look at verse 17. And for these four young men, as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Wow. These four bar mitzvah boys had knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Why? Because they were really sharp kids? No. God gave them that power. They were triumphant by the power of God, even in captivity. But why them? I mean, why was God favoring them? Well, it's very simple. They were triumphant in captivity because they were taken by God's providence. They were tested in God's purpose, and they passed the test. So God poured his power into them. Guys, if you haven't gotten the message already, let me say it plainly. Captivity is part of the providence, purpose, and power of God. 
Victorious living isn't for free men or free women. It is reserved for believers who are trapped in their present circumstance and slaves to righteousness. Trusting the providence, purpose, and power of God is the answer. Friends, Daniel died in exile. The circumstance never changed. But in his captivity, he lived victoriously. I'll close with these familiar words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Captivity? Yet, in all these things, in captivity, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Our God and our King, There's not a single circumstance in a single life in this room about which you are not fully apprised. There is no situation over which you are not sovereign. And I pray that right now that we would have the courage, the guts, to slip our lives under your governance and thereby find safety and ability and power to be pulled through that circumstance and triumphant even in the midst of our circumstance. We love you and trust you. We thank you that you've demonstrated your love in this, that while we were still hating you, running from you, despising you, Christ died for us. May we live for you today and find victory in captivity. In Jesus' name, amen.